0: Our scripture lesson this morning comes from 2nd Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians 6, and we'll be reading just the first two verses. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. We are entering a new and wonderful sixth chapter. This sermon will be only two verses, but the next two sermons will be covering a lot more territory. We'll be through chapter six before too long. And really, that's almost halfway through the book as far as chapter divisions are concerned. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, thank you that now is always the time for the church because you've been good to us in every possible way and you poured upon us all the blessings of the new covenant so you would have us enjoy Jesus now. May we do that as we hear him preached. May we ingest him into our hearts with faith and then into our bodies in the sacramental meal later by faith, too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the well-known expression, there's no time like the present, is one that people often use, and usually it has to do with not putting something off or procrastinating about something. But there's, that's really not what this text is about. Um, it may include that. That may be entailed in the concept, but That I found out in my studies, looking at the text, and especially the Old Testament citation taken from Isaiah 49.8, that this scripture lesson goes much further than just that concept. When we actually go back and look at that Old Testament citation, and Elder Wayne read it for us from Isaiah 49.8-13, it's a beautiful messianic, Context of glory and wonder in the new covenant age, and it's expressed in the loftiest and loveliest of terms. That verse 2a in 2nd Corinthians 6 reads this way In a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. So the day that Paul is referring to here has already dawned. This is a day for the Corinthians back in the 50s AD, 1st century, and a day for us today in the 21st century that's already come. And these blessings are already on us, the church. All the glories and promises and wonder of this new covenant Grace that would come upon the people of God has descended upon us as it did upon them back then. It's all about enjoying life in Christ now, which is already ours by grace, much more than it is about making a choice before it's too late. In fact, that sort of concept is pretty foreign to our Reformed theology, isn't it? We don't employ that sort of artificial pressure. Make a choice before it's too late. That's really not the point of these verses. What it really is is about enjoying... Our covenant life as the church in Jesus Christ today, as we're doing in this worship service, and will in the love feast, which really smells good and looks good down there, uh, a little bit later. So, but for now, let's really focus on these verses, and in light of all this glorious mercy, let's make it our goal this Lord's Day to be shown to be faithful in Christ as God's redeemed church, looking together at just these two verses, 1 and 2 of Second Corinthians chapter 6. The title of the sermon now is The Time, The Doctrine. For those in the church, redemption is never negotiable. N e g o t i a b l e. Now, what I mean by this doctrinal statement that redemption is never negotiable covered in today's scripture lesson quite clearly is this. For the elect redeemed church people of God, nothing is to or really can stand in the way of our full liberties and blessings in Jesus Christ. Nothing can block those. We have full access to those. Those are ours. That's an inheritance Jesus bought for us. He gives it to us. We gave up our inheritance in the fall. Jesus gained it all in his redemption. And now he parcels it out to us, all of this glorious liberty. For us, salvation can never be bargained away or bartered with. And because by grace we value Christ beyond measure, by his grace, we may wholeheartedly affirm that for those in the church... Redemption is never negotiable. Now let's make this really practical. Every gospel sermon is to be believed. Now, this is what's happening in the Corinthian context. Paul is always speaking to them as a body of of Christians that gather on Sunday to worship, to take the Lord's Supper, to hear the Word of God preached, to enjoy love feasts like we have here today. And this is a weekly covenantal evidence that indeed we actually are securely in Christ, if indeed we can believe every gospel sermon. Now, those of you who can hear and receive and believe and ingest biblical gospel sermons with faith and humility are the children of God. People that cannot do that are not the children of God. That's a clear delineation, a very objective guide that God gives the church. Now Paul's entire epistolatory context from the end of chapter 5 now going into chapter 6 has been focused on the preaching of, quote, the message of reconciliation, as we see from verse 19b of chapter 5. So are you beginning to see the key, important, absolute, critical nature Of this part of your Christian life, which is the essence and core and corpus of it, the critical nature of the gospel preached ministry to you, as you treasure this, not only now but into your future, your Christian life will flourish. Conversely, failure to appreciate this will certainly mean shipwreck of one's religious profession. The glories of the gospel, the dares of God's grace and mercy, were beautifully wrapped up for us in that amazing verse that ended chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. and We studied it last week, verse 21, which reads, For our sake he the Father made him the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Christ, we, the church, might become The righteousness of God. Every gospel sermon is to be believed so that current salvation may be relished by us. I think this is really the stress in today's lesson on the church's immediate current at present, delighting in all the blessings and benefits now today that we experience in Christ as his people, bought and paid for by his blood atonement. After all, what good would it have been for Paul to write anything he did in the first two verses of chapter 6 if this wasn't the case? So bottom line, dear saints, you and I who are by grace alone, faithful in Christ, his gospel and his church, have a important responsibility to be happy, to be blessed, to be joyful, to be thankful... We have a responsibility to be happy, even as our sinful flesh seeks to try to convince us not to be happy. And of course, this happiness can be and only is found in the person of Jesus Christ alone, because there is no such thing as happiness or blessedness aside from Jesus Christ. It doesn't exist. There's no life aside from him, there's no truth aside from him, and there's certainly no blessedness or happiness aside from him. Whatever the world pretends is a false form of it, and everything that the world is doing and all its lusts will pass away and be worth nothing. And they'll be gone before you can even imagine how fast that will be. If there's anything independent of Jesus Christ is not goodness. Someone might argue, well, I don't want to be happy in God's way. I want to be miserable in my own way. Well, a person is certainly free to choose that very unwise, foolish option, but not a sincere Christian, not a real Christian. We don't have the option of not being happy in Jesus Christ. It comes with the package of regeneration. It is not something we can... Take or leave. Let's look at these two verses. They're really exciting. I think you'll enjoy them as we study together and understand why now is always the time for the children of God. Verses 1 and 2, 2 Corinthians 6. Why is it that we don't live in the past and we don't live in the future? You ever thought about that? You understand that time began upon the very instant God created anything. Before he created anything, there was no such thing as time. God exists in eternity. He doesn't exist in the time-space continuum. He can view all of creation, time-space, as an eternal instant. This is how he can know the future from the past. He is the God who decrees it all. But why is it that we live in the present and not the past and the future? Well, not only because we're contingent beings and we're required to do that, but God has designed us to live in the present. Our covenantal apprehension and appreciation of what God has done for us in the past makes our lives comfortable and blessed because we look back upon his kindness to us and we say, I'm still standing after all these years. In my prayer, I mentioned the poor and oppressed and afflicted of the earth. Do you realize that you people that love Jesus and are members of his church, that's who you are? Do you realize how narrow those margins are? If you're looking at it from a human point of view with the hatred and vicious wrath of the world aimed at your souls and hearts and bodies and beings every day, and yet you still stand? You take comfort from the fact that God has been good to you in the past. And then with regard to the future, we can trust God as well. Because all his promises are yes and amen in Jesus, Second Corinthians 1.20. And all of them are true. All of those promises that have been made have been fulfilled. The few that are left to be fulfilled are certainly going to be as well. So we can live comfortably in the present with confidence At this juncture here today, though, on this 19th day of November 2023, let us thoughtfully consider why now is always the time for the children of God. First, because the sacrifice of Christ is of ultimate value. Verse 1, working together with him, that's God, then, we, Paul and his ministerial comrades appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So how does a Christian even for sake of argument, a regenerated Christian how is it possible for a member of the church in Corinth or any other faithful church to actually receive the grace of God in vain? I would argue again that we need to look at the context around verse 1 here to answer that question. And when we do, we find out, interestingly, a sort of often neglected doctrine. And that has to do with Paul's often spoke of need to receive the preaching and the preachers and the ministers that God sends to his church. Because this whole debate in chapter 6... And I finally come to the conclusion that I can finally understand these weird words starting at verse 14 through 18, which I always had a hard time figuring out why they were there. And I'll explain it more next week, Lord willing. Are there because it has everything to do with who will the Corinthians listen to? Are they going to listen to Paul and the real apostles? Or are they going to... Listen to the false apostle Judaizers who are pandering to them, a religion of works and law. That was indeed the question. And in fact, this is rather clear from what had preceded. But especially, and that would then been in chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, but it's especially obvious in what's going to follow in chapter 6, verse 3, to at least the end of the chapter. In fact, you could even say it, it leaks over into chapter 7, all the way to at least verse 2, perhaps. If the Corinthians would listen to Paul, they would not be receiving the grace of God in vain. If they refused to hear Paul and preferred some other false gospel, as per the Judaizers who were troubling the church in Corinth, and there's plenty of them around today as well, they would be receiving the grace of God in vain. Now all of this shows the importance not only of the gospel itself and the credibility of the truly called and ordained ministers of the church, but also of the ultimacy of Christ's sacrificial, vicarious, propitiatory atonement, wrought in his own body and through the effusing or shedding of his precious blood for our sins to remit them. The grace of God of which the Apostle is writing here, not to be received in vain, is entirely encompassed in the person and the preaching of this same Lord Jesus Christ that we're speaking of, his redemptive work on our behalf. To receive the grace of God in vain is not to receive the person and the work and atoning merits of Jesus Christ himself, and rather going for something else. Therefore, as we can lucidly perceive, a lot is at stake in both who and what we listen to and with regard to the the gospel message, be it authentic or alleged. Also note before we leave verse 1 that Paul boldly establishes his apostolic authority right off the bat with the words that open that chapter. And I quote him, working together with him, God, then we appeal to you. So Paul had the authority to say that. This apostolic authority issue is very important. Why now is always the time for the children of God? Because the sacrifice of Christ is of ultimate value. And... Because the sovereignty of God has perfectly served us. Verse 2a, for he, God, says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Now, given the aforementioned context of Isaiah 49.8, from whence this verse is quoted... I think that verse 2a is actually the key verse in this passage and might be argued in this whole chapter because it really dictates what's going on. This is an example of where the the apostle would use a prophet's words and apply them in its fullness. And not only the verse that he quotes, but the entire context. Now, if you heard Elder Wayne, or you want to go back and read those verses, 8 through 13, Psalm Isaiah 49, excuse me, you'll, you'll see these are glorious messianic words of grace and wonder that are ours in Christ. Now, to explain, the Holy Spirit inspired the apostle to remind the Corinthian parish made up of Jews and Gentiles that they were the chosen people of God, upon whom all these wonders and glories and promises of the new covenant had fallen in that day. They already had it. All of this is a work of sovereign grace and mercy. After all, who were the Corinthians? Who were these corrupt Greek Gentiles who practiced the grossest immoralities and idolatries, who were they, after all? And who were they who would want anything to do with the God of the Bible, the Lord of the Covenant, the one and only deity that exists? You might remember Paul went into Corinth with fear and trembling from 1 Corinthians. And he goes there, and he determines just to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified. And he does that, and God elicits out of that corrupt culture, elect human beings that he had preordained unto life from before the foundation of the world, predestination and election, form them into a holy church, which still had problems. It would be these people and not any number of others we might mention about whom we might have thought better candidates who received the great and ancient covenant blessings of and in the Messiah as they are related in the environs of Isaiah forty nine eight. Now all of this could only be attributed to God's sovereign grace and mercy, all had in Christ. So there's, here's a question for you. Has the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth listened to you in the favorable time? Has he helped you in the day of salvation? If he has, this is only because he chose you before the foundation of the world, and in time and space he poured out upon you in regenerating grace, the power of the Holy Spirit, and all the grace and wonder that came with that, the predestinating and electing love in his pristine Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This God we serve is beautiful and amazing. Do you understand, dear saints, who you are and what privileges you have as members of the church, the faithful church? There is no higher standing in the world. There's, there isn't another culture or society or group or organization or association that even comes close to this august, esteemed, glorious body that is called the body of Christ, the church. Why now is always the time for the children of God? Because the sacrifice of Christ is of ultimate value. The sovereignty of God has perfectly served us, and finally, because the seriousness of life compels sincere faith and love, verse 2b. Behold, now is the favorable time, behold, now is the day of salvation. Now in context again, verse 2b is a call not so much to action as it is to repentance. Now is the day, now is the acceptable time. Paul's saying, you've received the blessings, now live in them, confirm them. Acknowledge the truth of them and the true preachers of them, Paul is saying. From what follows, I hold that Paul is strongly exhorting the Corinthian Christians to once and for all close the book on the whole question, do we side with Christ and his apostles, or do we go with the false apostle Judaizers who make it easy for us, the feel-good people, the ones that are give us a little credit for what we do, where we can throw something into the pot of salvation? He's calling them to make that determination. Even as late as chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, we still read these concerning words, and I'll quote them. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. So Paul's saying, we're widening our hearts to the Corinthians, you widen them to... Now, end of the day, it all comes out fine in the wash. And it's a good thing, because if it didn't, this book wouldn't be here. And it's likely we may not be here either. But God in his ultimate sovereignty brought them to their senses. The gospel, dears, is serious business. And our true affection for Christ is always manifest in our corresponding true affection for his church, all her members, and his ministry. Therefore, instead of these verses being used to scare people into heaven before it's too late as it's often been the case, you know. Now is the acceptable time, etc. That's not what these verses are about. In reality, these verses are intended by God to rouse his church to an immediate call to her Savior and to all her duly and truly ordained ministers. Still, having said all that, I think these two verses do indeed have for us some perennial timelessness, and let's look at that in our application section today, and comprehend why today's text is relevant for the church at any time. Now, dears, we're not going to stray from the meaning of these verses as we put them to use in this section of our sermon, The true meaning of any text must elicit the applications that are in harmony with that meaning and which flow out from it. There can be different applications, but they have to be in harmony with those meanings. So with that spirit of humble intentionality and with the desire to grow in our confident love in and for God through our glorious Lord Jesus, let us embark now on grasping why today's text is relevant for the church at any time first, since the gospel exposes the hearts of everyone. You know, I think this is pretty much the main point of our lesson for today. Actually, the aim that we put forth in our sermon, you can see it at the bottom of your outline there, is to, quote, be shown to be faithful in Christ as God's redeemed church. I think that fits perfectly harmoniously with the proper understanding of these two verses. No one can hide from God during the preaching of a gospel sermon. Now, this helps explain why so many people make sure that they can go somewhere where they'll never be confronted with one. And frankly, I understand that. I get that. There's a sense in which I can even respect that. No one can hide from God during the preaching of a true gospel sermon. But for the true church, for redeemed and regenerated Christians, this is something you undergo every week. Not every once in a while, every Sunday. You're put to the test every Lord's Day. Will I continue to be faithful? Will I continue to believe this? Or will I look for something easy and convenient and feel good? Those are the options. Can we blame unbelievers for avoiding a, a place, a faithful church, where their hearts would be exposed? Now, there's, we all understand that's an extremely uncomfortable thing, isn't it? We, we can all, as human beings, all fallen human beings, we, we understand that. We get that. But there's, for a heart to be exposed before God in repentance and contrition and brokenness and humility is a beautiful thing that is irresistible to God so when you come to church you hear gospel sermons you take the table you pray allow your heart to be exposed to God don't hide anything from him he knows it all anyway and if you're in Christ he loves you perfectly don't rob yourselves let him have everything let him pour the blood of Jesus over every nook and cranny and dark spot and place in your soul and heart that you are hoping no one would ever know. But God knows everything. And if you're in Jesus, he loves you. But can we avoid, can we blame people for not wanting that? And yet, it's still our sincere heartfelt desire to preach this glorious, gracious, tender, wonderful, merciful, compassionate gospel to sinners. And those whom God is calling to himself, he will bring to himself. So if we love people, we're going to bring them to a place where they can hear it. If we don't care about people, if we want them to stay in their sins, if we're too concerned they'll be upset about their hearts being exposed or the truth coming to them, well just shows we don't really care much for them, do we? So consider that in your evangelism, in your life as a church, not only today, but into the future as well. The Corinthian Christians were being called to account here. And in a sense, every time you, and myself included, prepare, preach, and hear gospel sermons, Lord's Day to Lord's Day, and you can... No, these have to come this way at me just as much as they go to anyone else. We're called to account because these are coming from the inspired, inerrant, perfect, holy word of God. These are the ordinances of God, the ordinary means of grace. Here's the thing. Don't be afraid. Don't fear the world who hates you, (laughs) despises you would rub you out in a second if it could, but your heavenly Father protects you. Don't fear the devil, whose head has been crushed. Don't fear your own flesh. Rather, let us boldly stare all these enemies down. They would all condemn us. They would all say, you're, you're a sinner, you're horrible, you're awful. They would all condemn us. Stare them all down by faith. Stand true and strong, courageous before them. Don't give in to them. And do this as you fully and wholeheartedly trust everything about yourself, even your sins, unto Christ. Since the gospel exposes the hearts of everyone... Election or reprobation are on the line. I wonder how many of you Calvinists may have uh, guessed that word. I bet there were a few of you out there. Now, you do know, I trust, that this is true. Every time a gospel sermon is preached, election or reprobation are on the line. Every time the pure and free grace of God is proclaimed to people and the wretchedness of human sinners is made manifest... And the masks and the falsehoods and the pretense is all stripped away. And all we can see before us is this gross carcass of dead humanity before us. There's every time that happens, the response to that in gospel good news either confirms election unto glory, or possible, but not necessarily absolutely, reprobation unto damnation. So these two are always on the line when the gospel is being preached. But it would be to go too far to say that a person who does not believe the good news, having heard it once, is to be deemed a reprobate. That would be to go too far, and we should not do that. The sovereign Lord of heaven and earth may give sinners more opportunities to hear the gospel, but that should never, ever be presumed upon. In that particular sense, the wrong understanding of these verses kind of comes into play in a sort of helpful, pragmatic way, right? But really, it should never be presumed upon. The one thing that is clear is that a person who does not embrace Jesus in that gospel is not regenerate. That part we can definitely Uh, No, for sure. But for us, may today's text prove something quite different. I call upon you to throw yourselves entirely on Jesus Christ. Trust that his blood alone has remitted all your sins and that his resurrection has secured for you forever your full and complete justified standing before the holy God, before whom you may present yourselves a fragrant offering of thanksgiving to God without fear of wrath or condemnation or judgment because all of that fell on the Christ whom we will partake of in this sacrament, Lord willing, in just a little while. However, now is the time to do what I just exhorted you to do and to be the church that's received the blessing. Indeed, it is true in that sense that now is the time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the glorious applications of the Old Testament prophecies of the wonders and glories of the new covenant already falling on the mid-first century Corinthian parish and upon us here today too. Thank you that now is the time, the acceptable day. You have heard us. You have given us the desire to call upon you, and we bless you in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.